Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Tuesday, April 2nd, and we're talking consumer goods. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and on today's show, we'll talk about McDonald's' latest acquisition, a little bit more of a tech-related acquisition, actually. Uh, Whole Foods is cutting prices again, uh, but we begin today with a new installment of Between Two Fools. As a member of services here at The Motley Fool, Aaron Timmons enjoys spending time looking for that next great stock idea. But what you probably don't know is that Aaron also spent seven and a half years working at Amazon.com, ultimately serving as a lead operator of a fulfillment center helping deploy the company's Kiva robot technology. I recently sat down with Aaron to talk more about what it's like to work at Amazon, how the company is bringing robots and humans together, and a lot more. Okay, so Aaron, for our listeners, just right from the very beginning here, how did you end up at Amazon? I mean, what was your process for actually selecting Amazon for employment in 2011? Thanks for asking, Jason. Uh, For me, there was nothing like the Great Recession to cause me to take stock of my life. (laughs) I think we all did that. (laughs) Fair enough. I I knew that eventually I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I, I wasn't quite ready for that yet, and I didn't feel like I had all the tools in my toolkit. And namely, the, the main thing that I felt like I was missing was culture. I, I didn't know how to create a winning culture. So with, with that kind of as the backdrop, I was looking to join a, a great business with a great culture. And deciding that uh, probably the best way to go about that was to put my, my mouth where my money was, I went to my Motley Fool scorecard. And I said, hey, if, if this is a list of great businesses that I feel like have bright futures, this would be the place for me to start. Huh. So I, I went line by line through my Motley Fool scorecard and was asking really two questions. First one was, is this truly a great business that has a great culture, a history of winning, and, and a future that I can get behind? And, and by the way, anything that didn't pass that test um, was not in my scorecard for much longer after that <laughs> evaluation. <laughs> and then number two was what turned out to be a more difficult question for me is, would this business hire somebody with my background? And so after that uh, review, I ended up applying to Amazon and uh, naturally the Motley Fool, because I realized (laughs) that the name at the banner splashed across the top of my scorecard was actually uh, a good fit as well. It qualified, yeah. It qualified, it did. And so I applied at both. Uh, One of them offered me an all-expenses-paid trip to Alexandria, Virginia for a fantastic (laughs) interview experience, and the other one offered me a job. And so with that, I headed to Phoenix, Arizona to work in an Amazon fulfillment center. Understandable. So the fulfillment center, now this is really fascinating to me because I don't know that I've ever spoken with anyone who actually um, has worked in one of these fulfillment centers. That's what piqued my interest initially when we started talking. Um, And and, I mean, you, you were actually in the position... At the you were running the fulfillment center, right? Not a, not initially. So I had to work my way up. I actually was with Amazon uh, from 2011, uh, seven and a half years. And so over the course of those seven and a half years, uh, I eventually was uh, fortunate enough to be in a position where I got to uh, be the the lead operator in a an Amazon facility where the Kiva technology has been deployed. Ah yes, the Kiva technology, the robots. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about your day to day. You work your way up into the Amazon fulfillment center. Tell me a little bit about the day to day 
as as you know as you got to that position where you were helping run this fulfillment center, taking on more responsibility, what is it like the day to day in one of those uh, fulfillment centers? Well, Jason, I've had the pleasure of working in manufacturing industries and then in Amazon. And so I would say that the day-to-day responsibilities, like the tasks on the plate, don't look and feel a lot different than, I would say, a lot of similar types of companies or similar industries. However, uh, because of the culture of Amazon and because of the customer obsession of the business, the uh, the focus areas and the things that that, that we strove to be excellent at uh, look different. We had such a surgical, precise approach to the execution within operation. Um, when we were planning for uh, the, the peak season or the, the holiday season, uh, we would spend weeks pouring over, making sure that the entire team knew exactly what was expected of them and how they were going to execute and what the contingency plans were. Uh, and and I think the other the other significant factor in terms of running uh, running those facilities is the dependencies between the different processes in the fulfillment center are hard for most people to get their minds wrapped around. Uh, and one easy way to kind of uh, demonstrate that, if we had an issue where the Amazon packages were getting placed or put onto a trailer, so the, the truck that's going to ultimately go to a FedEx or a UPS, if we had an issue there and we had to stop that, that area, we had about seven minutes, Jason, before wow. that stoppage would back its way all the way up to our team members that were taking inventory out of shelves because you just booked. So that was how closely coupled everything was uh, throughout the value stream. So uh, I want to talk a minute about the the Kiva robotics technology here because I mean we you know we talked about these fulfillment centers and in how everyone sort of depends on each other to make sure this this machine keeps keeps well oiled and running smoothly. What what is the did you find as as time went on did did it seem like they become more and more automated? Like are we going to hit a point in time here in the next ten years where these centers are basically fully automated and and more or less not reliant on people at all? I think that's a fair question. I have to get a little bit philosophical on you and, and tell you that it, it really goes back to Amazon's mission to be Earth's most customer-centric company. Yeah. And so in, in order to get to that point, I would tell you that Amazon's going to leverage technology and automation everywhere that it allows them to remove costs as long as they're not compromising an inch on customer obsession or customer experience. Right. If that technology is going to negatively impact customers in any way, they're just not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's understandable. So, I guess the, the, the follow-on question there, from your experience, uh, who, who runs those centers better, people or robots? Well, I, I think that it's – you kind of have to separate. Like, where do you, where do you incorporate the automation? Right. And here – there's, there's a lot to that question, to be frank with you. <laughs> so I, I had the pleasure of getting to see our software technologies mature <laughs> drastically while I was there. And I, I worked uh, a couple different positions during my time there. And one of them was an opportunity I had to work uh, on a technology team that really served as the bridge between operations 
software and our physical design engineers. So that, that triangle that kind of figures out where the future's headed and then makes sure that the buildings support it, the operators know how to use it, and the software works to, to, uh, to function correctly. And in that circle, we pressed hard into automation for decision-making. And so it was more of like the managerial automation. But on the other side of that spectrum, you have the actual physical, the physical processes, right? And when, when your subtitle is the everything store, the, the number of items, the, the shape, size, weight, characteristics of those items vary so much that you get to the point where the technology is just not there to automate the manipulation, the picking up, the putting down, the, ha the handling uh, of those items as effectively as people were uniquely designed by our creator to do. Like it just doesn't work when you're talking things that vary so widely. And so you can, you can do some technology automation. Uh, I operated a facility uh, for Amazon that had over 15 miles of conveyance. Wow. There were thousands and thousands miles. of robots. So we had a tremendous amount of automation, but most of it was to supplement or complement what our, what our associates were doing. It was a highly automated facility, but the technology and the people worked hand. It wasn't replacing people. It was helping them to be more efficient. Yeah, making it better, complementing the system. I mean, I think that's a that's a great point there because I mean, we talk about this future where things are becoming more and more automated, whether it's cars or Amazon fulfillment centers or restaurants or whatever it is. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, though, you you do need people. I mean, there is good old fashioned human judgment and capability that is is irreplaceable in many ways, and it sounds like. Uh, it sounds like in your job that that really really was no exception. So uh, pivoting a little bit from the actual day to day processes and whatnot that went on at your work, I want to just ask you a little bit about working at Amazon. And we've seen headlines and stories over the past couple of years, few years. You know, it's a high pressure environment. There's there are all sorts of different perspectives on working. Um, at Amazon, some good, some bad, some in between. Yep. So, I mean, I understand everybody's got an opinion about this, but but given that you were there, you were working there, and it sounds like you were working in a pretty high pressure job. Um, what what was your experience working at Amazon? Did you like it? What was the culture like there? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question, and one that uh, I've I've received that question uh, hundreds of times. People are very curious about this, and I'll tell you. Uh, they want to know about drones, and they want to know about the culture. <laughs> the two things I get asked about the most. So I, I would say this. I would say Amazon, it, it, it is a very unique culture, and it's a culture for winners. It's a culture of winners. Uh, there's, there's really little tolerance for folks that are non-team players that don't want to function and think like owners, uh, and certainly, uh, certainly a culture that doesn't tolerate those that don't carry their weight. And to be honest, Jason, in, in many ways, that's really refreshing. And that, unfortunately, does mean it's a culture that's not for everybody, uh, like you pointed out. Uh, I'll say this. When I joined the company, I realized pretty quickly uh, that I was surrounded by a group of people that were, um, that were the kinds of individuals that I wanted, my, uh, I wanted my interest aligned with. So I felt very good about my investment in Amazon when I joined Amazon. I mentioned it was on my scorecard, so I already owned shares of the stock shares and I became an employee and, and I felt magnitudes more positive 
about the direction of the company and about the, the, um, the future value of that investment, after I've realized the caliber of individuals that I was working around, uh, I guess the other key component of uh, culture that I'd emphasize is um, I experienced something there. When I, when I set out to get that, uh, that well-rounded toolkit and understand how to create a winning culture, I experienced something at Amazon that was, I think, really paramount for being able to create that. And that was this congruence between Amazon's leadership principles that were written on posters, hanging on the walls, and the day-to-day expectations of myself as an employee, and then the language that I used to give feedback, and I also received my feedback of how I was performing, because those were always framed in terms of leadership principles. It was very congruent, and I'd never experienced that before. And because it was so congruent, it gave everyone a clear understanding of expectations, common vocabulary for development, uh, and just a, a much clearer picture of the true north. And from my vantage point, the impact of that cannot be understated. I think that's one of the secret sauces that doesn't get talked about very much. Uh, you know, in, in investing circles or on Wall Street, is that that true north that, that everybody's able to march to. Well, you, you've made me feel a lot better about still owning my shares of Amazon. Now, I mean, it's, it's worth reiterating to listeners, you retired from the company this past November. Uh, with that in mind, do you still own your Amazon shares? I I do. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, good man, good man. Well, you're following our Motley Fool advice then, because I think it's a buy in virtually every service that we run. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Aaron, I, I want to get to a book recommendation here, uh, because we always love to ask our, our interviews for a book recommendation. But before we get there, you have, I tell you what, I was kind of scratching my head trying to visualize this in my head. You have a pretty funny story that involves Jeff Bezos uh, and, and touring through a fulfillment center in Phoenix. Uh, tell, us, tell us that story real quickly, please. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess you can't fire me now. You got so closer to him than I, uh, most of us ever will. That's fair. That's fair. So, I was, um, I was a part of a very scrappy age of Amazon, uh, really had that entrepreneurial mindset. I uh, slight tangent, one of my uh, books that was really beneficial to help give me a better understanding of what I was a part of uh, was when I read The Innovator's Dilemma. And that book oh, yeah. talks about how an organization kind of keeps that, that uh, startup mentality uh, and fosters, uh, fosters really innovative growth into new technologies in the midst of a much larger organization, sort of tangentially around that large organization, around that core nucleus, and supporting those. Well, I was a part of one of those kind of startup teams. And I was, um, we'll just say, reappropriating some resources from one facility to another. And um, uh, I, I had located uh, this cart that uh, I needed to move about, I think there was probably 10 or 20 of these things. I needed to move them from one building to another. And I had, a, I had secured capacity on a truck that I was going to put these onto, not any extra cost. It was already going to the destination building. But I didn't need anybody in the facility I was in to know about it. Uh, again, very scrappy. Uh, bootstraps entrepreneurial environment. So I'm pushing these carts through some of these uh, through some aisles, uh, out of out of the line of sight of most people, uh, and I'm pushing this cart through these aisle through this aisle, and I come around a corner, and there is an entourage, 20, 25 people, <laughs> and at the head of that group, not more than I don't know, 10, 15 feet from me, is Jeff, and he's with 
the executives from Kiva, who this was shortly after the acquisition had gone through. And, and here I am trying to keep a low profile. I don't want anybody to see that I'm over here pushing <laughs> these carts, put them on this trailer. I'm just trying to keep low key. And the CEO of the company walks around the corner. So my plan didn't go so well. <laughs> well, let me just tell you, I think I speak for all uh, shareholders of Amazon today. We're very glad that you didn't run over Jeff Bezos, you know, because it sounds like Fair it could have ended uh, ended in disaster. A disaster, thankfully, averted. Uh, Aaron, this has been great. Uh, real quick, I want to wrap this up with you. Uh, you know, we're big readers here at The Fool, and we always love to get new book recommendations from listeners and interviews and members. Uh, you you have a book recommendation for us? I do, Jason. I have one that's a little off the beaten path. Uh, got a book. Uh, by a gentleman named Hugh Hewitt called In But Not Of. And it's a book that really gave me uh, practical practical application for how to pursue my desire to influence the world. It's, it's a good uh, book to give inspiration and kind of permission to be ambitious. All right. Well, good stuff. We'll leave it there. Aaron Timmons, thanks so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed talking to you. We'll talk again soon. Absolutely, Jason. It's been my pleasure. Okay, and now joining me in the studio via Skype, as usual, Mr. Asit Sharma. Asit, how's everything going? I'm going to put aside my go-to word, which is awesome, Jason, and I'm going to say today... I'm doing fantastic. How are you? Well, hey, you know what I mean? Awesome, fantastic. Maybe I should say... um, you know, I'm just going to go with really well. How about that? I could always <laughs> be a little bit better, but I could always be a little bit worse. And you know what? You you, you can complain, but nobody wants to hear it. So Fair. you just, you just got to keep on moving forward, right? Fair enough, my friend. I wish that we were sitting here talking about how our teams might have progressed a little bit further yeah. through the NCAA basketball yeah. tournament. <laughs> Uh, you know, not gonna not gonna dig too much into that. Obviously, we we wish we would have had a little bit of a better showing, but. You know, just to be in the tournament, to be able to watch some games, that was that was fun. But, uh, hey, I guess there's always next year, right? Absolutely. It's always an achievement to, just to make the tournament, and it's great to progress. And we, we had fun watching our teams. I had fun watching your Wofford Terriers, um, their dynamic. And I did see your tweet uh, <laughs> insisting, you know, on this what if. What if Zion Williams had had attended Wofford? For those of you who follow oh, Jason's yeah. advice to Google this relationship up <laughs> at the end of our last episode, I, I was thinking, you know, that team probably would have had a much better chance of taking the whole dance um, than Duke did or, or Wofford, I guess. But anyway. Um, anyway. Next year. <laughs> yep, next year. Well, let's talk about consumer goods. Let's talk about investing. Talk about how we can help our listeners make some money investing in consumer goods. Uh, first up today, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about McDonald's, the Golden Arches. Uh, they recently made an acquisition, um, a company called Dynamic Yield, which, if you're thinking that doesn't sound like a restaurant company, then you are probably uh, not too far off. It doesn't really sound like a restaurant company. It's a bit more of a tech company. Uh, they use AI to deliver better customer experiences. Uh, Asit, how about break this deal down for our listeners? Sure. So, Dynamic Yield is a small company that's based in Tel Aviv. Um, it has some $80 million of venture capital already invested in it. Uh, and it has clients. It's an operating company that delivers decision logic technology to retailers. So what this is, is essentially it's 
as, as you mentioned, Jason, it's using artificial intelligence and also machine learning to provide insights. Uh, McDonald's is going to use this technology to replace their vaunted human version of this technology, <laughs> which is the upsell. Would you like fries with that burger? Uh, which has been the upsell tech, go-to upsell technology for McDonald's probably for the last three decades. So this small company is going to help McDonald's churn data um, based on a number of factors. And where it will be focused initially is the drive-through. Uh, as many people who have invested in McDonald's probably already know, the company drives the majority of its uh, revenue from the drive-through. And we've seen McDonald's go through this cycle of replacing static menu boards with digital menu boards where they have more control over what the customer sees. So this right. is the next step in that um, evolution. Company Dynamic Yield is going to use uh, algorithms and machine learning to analyze not only past ordering patterns from a particular location. And this is being tested. It's been tested for the last year or so in a location in Miami, but it's going to incorporate real-time data like weather, um, which will help it suggest add-on items uh, to consumers who are coming through that drive-through. So, Jason, um, back to you. What are your initial thoughts on this uh, out-of-the-box investment for McDonald's? Yeah, you know, I mean, this. I think a little bit back to just the interview had we had here at the beginning of the show with Aaron. We talked a lot about you know the robot robots working with humans in perfect harmony and and complementing each other. And it seems like more markets, more industries are going this way, figuring out ways to incorporate technology into their models to make the experience better. And I, I think about the Panera just across the street here from uh, Full HQ, and I'll swing by there sometimes to grab a little lunch. And the kiosks there in the store are usually pretty intuitive in trying to upsell me uh, something to go with a salad. I mean, whether I want a drink or you know a cookie for dessert or whatever. So I, you know, I would imagine over time. I mean, McDonald's is certainly trying to rely, I think, less on people and more on technology. I mean, if you think about it, really, these these stores probably at the end of the day could be run by run by computers uh, with just like one person overseeing them. I I, I think it makes sense. Um, I don't know. I just I, I'm not the biggest fast food guy in the world, so I don't ever really go to McDonald's. But I feel like maybe it would be worth going to one sometime just to see what the experience is like now. Because I think the last time I really went to McDonald's was probably you know 20 or 30 years ago, maybe even longer. Yeah, I I think I've admitted this on this show a couple of years ago, but I never really kicked the McDonald's habit. I become a much more healthy person. <laughs> uh, I still succumb. Um, and you know, sometimes on the sly, I mean, I end up telling my wife, yeah, I took the kids to McDonald's after school. Sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I yeah. I didn't take them for that healthy snack, but I'll still do that. And, um, I guess what's interesting to me about this deal, uh, if you get a chance listeners, there's a great wired article, uh, which just summarizes this deal and provides some insights, but wired got a brief exclusive interview with McDonald's CEO, Steve Easterbrook. And I just want to read a quick quote. Um, Easterbrook said, how do you transition from mass marketing to mass personalization? To do that, you've really got to unlock the data within that ecosystem in a way that's useful to a customer. Um, and that really resonated with me as for what the potential of this might be. Although it's going to take, you know, let's admit, a few years before you, you might see something in an earnings report from McDonald's that says, hey, because of this technology, we gained a few points of margin. But what's interesting is 
machine learning applied to big data. I'm sort of a fan of this, and and this is something that's mentioned in the Wired article. Sometimes the insights that artificial intelligence gleans from data is just totally counterintuitive uh, to what human insight or how, how human insight works. Uh, I want to give a really brief example. If any of you play chess out there, uh, and even if you don't, I think this will be easy enough to follow, but Google has a program called DeepMind AlphaZero, and this is a chess engine which basically taught itself how to play in about four hours and then proceeded wow. to play like a million games against itself. So this natural learning, machine learning type engine was then, um, it then faced off against the reigning chess engine, which it's just a brute force engine, which basically calculates how to play based on analyzing a lot of moves much faster than a human could calculate. So on the one side, this natural learning, uh, machine learning engine. On the other side, just sheer like calculating 10, 20, 50 moves down. And they pitted the two machines against each other. What was interesting is that uh, AlphaZero, the, the program that Google developed, had some insights which were counterintuitive in an amazing way, even to grandmasters. For example, we had this principle in chess that you should protect your king at the beginning of the game. And AlphaZero showed a willingness to leave its king out in the open if it meant it could move some other pieces more aggressively, uh, hmm. stuff that a human just would not do. And I think when you apply this to what McDonald's is doing, this won't happen overnight, and it's not going to be something that totally upends their business model. But I think they're going to glean some small insights, you know, just dreaming up an example, which is completely random. But, you know, it, it might suggest that, hey, offer a customer a hot fudge sundae on the coldest day of the year, something that a human manager <laughs> wouldn't say. Like, hey, offer them a hot cocoa is what the human manager would say. Um, but we can expect some of these uh, to happen, some of these insights to emerge, and McDonald's to capitalize on it. Now, just to close so we can move on um, quickly, I can t uh, push back to you, Jason. But McDonald's says that they're going to eventually apply this to those interactive kiosks in the restaurants and also their mobile ordering app. So it's really a larger scale exercise that it's getting out of this $300 million investment. It's something for shareholders just to follow along um, for the next couple of years. It should be fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I am all for those kiosks. I'm all for using technology to make the experience better ordering from the store. And, and you know what? I've got to call myself out here a little bit because I maybe wasn't being totally honest when I said that I don't really eat fast food much because there is one that I'll tell you, man, the worst thing that probably could have ever happened, they opened up a Chick-fil-A probably like five minutes from our house. Uh, Chick-fil-A is one of those ones where we will go by there uh, on occasion for a quick dinner or something like that. Um, what I have noticed there at the Chick-fil-A, and, and I think about this in relation to what a lot of these other stores are doing, it, and it may, maybe Chick-fil-A is playing a little bit of a different game. They're not they're not going to have as many stores as a McDonald's. They're not a publicly traded company. They don't have to answer to shareholders. They just get to kind of do their own thing. Um, but what I noticed at Chick-fil-A is, is they don't really incorporate much in the way of technology there. When things start getting really busy, they double down on more people. Uh, they have a two-line drive-through. They'll get people outside of the window uh, to meet you halfway to the window to ring up your transaction to try to make that customer service experience better, faster. Um, and, and you know, I mean, they they have a pretty simple offering when it comes to food. I mean, it's you know, chicken fries and fruit and some you know drinks. And man, they had this key lime 
like frozen lemonade, which is like really good. It's just a seasonal offering, but but yeah, I mean, it's just interesting to see. I mean, that probably is a little bit of the difference there, and that you've got a company that has to answer to shareholders versus a company that doesn't. So they get to kind of play their own game where that's concerned. Uh, but but yeah, either way, I think I, I think that Steve Easterbrook, the CEO of McDonald's, really deserves. Um, a, a round of applause for what he's been able to do with this business um, and turning it around in, in you know following what he saw as this vision of turning this company into a modern progressive burger company is what he always kept calling it and and that really is what they've become yeah I agree they really followed through with that and um, just a last point because you brought up the great example in my mind I I, I really like what you said about chick-fil-a because they've got such a good product um, they can just focus on throughput, and uh, reminds yeah. me of you know Chipotle when it's before it had uh, you know the business decline and of course resurgence now. But back in the day when Chipotle first started out, that's what they were obsessed with too. Like Chick Fil A is just mm-hmm. pushing as much throughput as they could because if you got the customers, you got the product. Focus on that, and that was the McDonald's of you know the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, and now McDonald's as a more mature company, fending off competition. It almost has to go to these new technologies to keep you know squeezing out some more uh, juice out of those profit margins and attract the um, the customer traffic. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, speaking of food and technology, uh, Whole Foods, which as as most listeners will probably know, uh, was recently. Acquired by Amazon, uh, Whole Foods is cutting prices again uh, in their grocery stores. And you know, Asad, I, I saw this uh, article last night. I saw the news break on Twitter that this was happening, and and I, I have to say, I mean, I wasn't personally surprised from it because I think when Whole Foods was acquired by Amazon, my thinking was that Amazon was going to use this opportunity to really flex that that. Pricing muscle, so to speak, and I don't mean pricing power and raising prices. I mean Amazon really focusing on lowering prices and and, and being as customer centric as possible. Um, so I'm not terribly surprised by this news. Uh, what about you? Is this something that uh, were you surprised by this news at all? Not really, but maybe surprised by where the you know price cuts are going to be. So this starts tomorrow. Whole Foods says it's slashing prices on hundreds of items. But most all of them are produce items, and they're going to save uh, customers an average of 20% on these different produce items. Uh, I have a few examples that I called from the press release. So, if you like mangoes, large mangoes for a dollar each. I love mangoes. Mangoes um, are great. Yeah, and I've I've got uh, family down in Florida, which they they probably are going to head there tomorrow and grab that. Uh, (laughs) Exclusive deals for Prime members. So, they have, I guess, about 150 Prime member deals a week. Uh, that is, if you have the Amazon Prime membership, you go into the Whole Foods, give them your phone number or account number, and you get an extra discount. Um, they'll double that to 300. Um, an example from the press release is you'll be able to buy organic asparagus for three dollars a pound, which will save you two dollars a pound, or buy spiral sliced ham for four bucks a pound, and that's a savings of 33 percent. So, but going back to maybe what's a little surprising to me is that it's you know it's so focused towards the green items. And this is something that Whole Foods started before it was acquired from Amazon. They realized that their handling of inventory wasn't optimal. They sort of grew so, you know, organically and then had some smaller acquisitions and grew so fast that 
Whole Foods never paid a lot of attention to how it managed its labor you know, most efficiently, how it handled inventory items. It used to have a lot of shrinkage. So they already were applying technology to this area of the store before the acquisition. And I guess it, it can only help if you're bought by Amazon.com and they've got so many logistics experts. You know, As we just heard in, in your interview, uh, they have such an acumen for making things more efficient. So I believe this partially reflects uh, the fact that they have been able to reduce the shrinkage, that's, you know, spoilage of the produce. Um, so they have some innate or inherent margin there that they can give back up. But I think the other thing it, it also um, speaks to is this desire on Amazon's part to bring a lot tra- of traffic into the stores and sell those prime memberships. Um, the, the prime membership, obviously, this overarching moneymaker for Amazon, and we see that they can use these stores to sell these memberships um, they have a special offer starting tomorrow. If you're not a Prime customer through the end of this month, from tomorrow through the end of the month, you can try Prime free for 30 days and you'll get a $10 um, off coupon for a, an order of $20 or more. So this is sort of the second leg. It's yes, let's, let's bring in more people to Whole Foods, but let's also sell those memberships. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, you made a really good point there in driving traffic, and that really is the point of the the grocery business. I mean, it is a low margin business, no matter who you are, and really the the key is to bring as many people into that store as you possibly can and let them buy stuff. Um, not very often where you can sit there and just raise prices at, at will in a grocery store and, and keep your traffic levels up. Um, so, you know, pricing is the easiest lever to pull. Get more people in there. Folks who aren't Prime members will get some exposure to that. And, and you know, I think also Whole Foods looks at, or Amazon rather, looks at, um, you know, there's another example out there, perhaps in Kroger. Uh, Kroger, which is a publicly traded company, they also own Harris Teeter, which is the higher end sort of version of Kroger, so to speak. And when they bought Harris Teeter, they kept that Harris Teeter brand. Um, and so now you've got this big 2,500 plus uh, grocery store base around the country of Kroger's and Harris Teeter's and catering to customers of all price points. So, I mean, I think you know, when we saw that news that Amazon is going to start opening up uh, grocery stores, under their name, not Whole Foods' name. So I, you know, I think we could assume that Amazon stores would be a little bit more value-oriented, but that will give them sort of that value-oriented offering and the higher-end offering with Whole Foods, uh, with the ultimate goal of just driving as much traffic in there as possible. Because yeah, the the Prime memberships are what really drive this business. It's all about just buying more stuff from Amazon at the end of the day, whether it's on Amazon.com. Or in a Whole Foods, or perhaps you know another Amazon grocery store. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we've seen the Amazon Go, which is their really tech-laden concept, and uh, this announcement that you mentioned. Uh, we heard in March that they will soon have, or planning to have. They've got already some leases signed, I believe. Um, stores in their own name. That might be the next step up towards a more traditional grocery store. Um, and I like that. Uh, analogy. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, so we this is sort of home base for Harris Teeter, North Carolina, and we've got oh, yeah. Kro- Kroger's here too. Although they actually moved out of our metropolitan area because of <laughs> some fierce grocery competition from other chains, which is it's a whole nother uh, segment we can talk about maybe in the future. Um, but 
I think that's a great model, and I think Amazon can profit by that. And they're already setting out some hooks for this, uh, Jason, in that uh, there are 60 metropolitan areas where they've extended free delivery um, for Whole Foods shoppers if you're a member of Prime and you take advantage of uh, the Prime service. Prime Now uh, also lets you uh, have either delivery or pickup. And I personally have seen a lot more of, of these dedicated shoppers who are pulling together orders for customers who have who've ordered delivery through their Prime memberships. And I think that that's going to be extended to this new branded store. Um, so I, the overarching principle here is one of experimentation, too. They're using Whole Foods uh, for a series of experiments with discounting, with, with delivery. And I think they're going to transfer that to this new brand as well. But, but you're absolutely right. They'll have a nice you know, upper margin, higher scale concept. They will have maybe a more conventional concept. And they've got the, the Amazon Go store, um, which I'm sure that they're going to continue to expand as well. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for the week. I said it's been a pleasure talking with you. I always enjoy when we get to do the show together and look forward to the next time we uh, get to jump in the studio. Same here. This was fun. Everyone have a okay. great week. Yep. Okay, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Asit Sharma and Aaron Timmons, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 